Bibles, and y'all can pray for me. It's going to only be 15 minutes that I have. I don't think I've ever preached for 15 minutes, but we have a lot of other things to do and say and pray for, and so uh, if you don't like long sermons, this is your Sunday. <laughs> Ephesians, amen. Somebody, hey, that's where you don't say amen, Oscar. <laughs> Take your time. All right, I got you. Ephesians chapter 2, hear the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, but God, but God. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you are uh, the one who calls us, the one who saves us, the one who keeps us. And so God, even now as we are in your presence, worshiping you and now ready to receive your word, we pray, God, you would change us. You would transform us in just these next few moments, that you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus, for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's a 22-year-old man named Apu Sarkar who lives in a small village in a, in a town uh, north in Bangladesh. And this man, he uh, comes from a family, a long line of farmers. His father was a farmer. His great-grandfather was a farmer. All of his family, the men in his family, are these farming folks. And, and they also share something else in common. They have this rare genetic condition that actually uh, has to where their body has no fingerprints on the tips of their fingers. And it's, it's very rare. There's only a few confirmed cases throughout the world, but, but this family tends to have that in the men in their family. And so as his father was growing up, it wasn't a big deal because the world that his father grew up in, fingerprints were not something that, that mattered very much, especially in this small rural town. He kind of did his thing and lived his life. But later on, as the decades went on, it became more prominent, more important. In fact, today in the modern world, fingerprints are the most collected biometric data, right? We use fingerprints for everything. We use fingerprints to open your smartphone, to, to, to you know, identify people. There's, there's fingerprints everywhere. They use that information all the time. And so for him, it became important in 2008 when the national government in Bangladesh decided to issue these ID cards for everyone. 
right? And so for him, you can imagine, he goes to this place to, to get an ID card that, that is required now by the government, and uh, he shows up to the place, and he knows this is going to be awkward, and he tells them, look, I have no fingerprints. And they, they have no idea what to do. They'd never seen anybody like this. They, they had never experienced this before. And so they huddle up and they're trying to figure out what, what are we supposed to do in this kind of situation. And after much argument and anger and back and forth, they decided finally to give him an ID card. But on the ID card, they stamped no fingerprint. And it was this crushing moment for him, this humiliating moment, because it set him apart as we can kind of identify you, but we're not sure if this is really going to work for you. And so we want to make sure everybody knows that we're not quite sure this is who he is. In other words, he knew who he was, but they didn't know who he was. He could prove who he was, but he didn't fit into their box, into their mold, into what they thought it meant to be identified as somebody. Have you ever struggled to know who you are? I mean, so many of us do, right? We, we often don't know who we are because we live with all kinds of false identities. We, we live with all these things that, that tell us who we are. People in the culture who tell us that we are what we do. We are our career or our success, or we are what our children become, or we are uh, what our friends or our spouse say about us, or we are what, what we are on social media and, and whatever platform you present yourself to be, right? There's this false identity that, that really is about everything you can do to perform. And so there's this sense in our culture as we continue to, bl uh, to blur those lines between humanity and machines, right? It becomes even more, what I do is who I am. And if you don't fit in, if you don't live up to the performance standard of whatever that thing is, you get stamped, no fingerprint. You're a nobody. We can't tell who you are, and you can't tell who you are. How, how do you know? See, the gospel is really what helps us know who we are, no matter what anyone else says. And so today we're continuing this series real briefly in Ephesians, and, and uh, I, I want us to look at this simple idea, how do you know who you are? And this passage is actually uh, the peak of Ephesians, so it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we come to this passage on a day where I've got such little time. To give you an idea, Martin Lloyd-Jones, this famous preacher in London from the past century, he preached a series in Ephesians, and in the series, he had 13 sermons on these 10 verses. And I've got 15 minutes, right? Like, you can't do it. There's, there's no way. It's, it's like trying to capture a picture of the Grand Canyon. How do you capture a picture of the Grand Canyon? You can't. You, you capture it in just small glimpses, a corner by a corner by a corner. And so today, we're going to get just a, a tiny corner of this beautiful landscape of the gospel that Paul gives us. And I want to ask this question, how do we know who we are? The passage contrasts, real briefly, who we are by nature and who we are by grace. Who we are by nature and who we are by grace. So first, let's look at by nature. Look at verse 1 with me. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Pause right there for a second. Listen to what he says. Let it sink in. 
He, he's saying, first of all, you, the sin that defined you by nature, who you were, it made you spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Right? And we know he's not talking about physical death because he's talking about people who are alive. He, he's talking about people who are, in a sense, this, these walking dead. These people who are living yet not alive. In other words, by all outward appearances, it seems like they're alive. You know, they, they might have good jobs, they might have a spouse, they might have some great friends, they might have some kids, they, they have wonderful things going on in their life, all these beautiful things that are happening. And so on the outside, it looks like there's life, but on the inside, it's a corpse. On the outside, it looks like everything's working, but on the inside, it's spiritual death. And notice he doesn't just say, you know, that the problem is they're spiritually sick or they're spiritually broken or they, they made some spiritual mistakes. No, he says they are spiritually dead. Dead. And it's out of this spiritual death, this deadness, that all of our sinful desires and actions flow, is what Paul says later. And, and this grim picture... Right? He, he goes deep into the depths of what it means to be a sinner. It kind of hits the bottom in verse 3. Look at what he says. It says uh, in verse 3, And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So first, you're spiritually dead, but, but second, you are children of wrath. I mean, Paul's not holding anything back, but, but pause for a second, because you might hear that and you're thinking, well, God's wrath, I thought God was loving. I thought God cared about us. How could he have wrath towards us? Well, think about this for a moment. God's wrath is not, it's not uh, irrational. It's not, um, it's not this sense that it's arbitrary or impersonal. It, you know, he's not a, a toddler God who, who just throws temper tantrums. He, he's not a God who, who is angry for no reason, but God's wrath is actually a righteous response to the evil of this world. God's wrath is his love in motion to say, I know there's pain and there's brokenness and there's sin and there's all these problems in this world. And so I'm not going to sit back and do nothing about it, but I'm going to move towards it and, and take care of it. Right. So so in a sense, God's wrath is really an action out of his love and his care to do something about evil. But here, here's the shocking part in the text. Paul includes us. He says, we were children of wrath. Not them, but we. And then he says, like all of mankind, everybody gets included into this. This is who we are by nature. Everyone. And so the first thing we see is honesty about sin precedes hope about a Savior. There, there has to be an honesty about who you were. Or who you are. There, there has to be an honesty about sin. And, and we fall into a trap, two kinds of traps here. Look at this. Many of us can either live with what Martin Luther King called superficial optimism or a crushing cynicism. The, the, the superficial optimism is this sense that, you know, I, I hear what you're saying that we're spiritually dead, but, but that, doesn't, that doesn't match what I believe about this world. And it seems like really the problem is we're so negative all the time. Right? I mean, if we could just be more positive, if we could be more kind, if, if people could stop being so negative about what's going on, the real problem is that we're always focusing on the problem. Right? Have you ever thought that or felt that or, or, or said that? 
There's this sense that if we could just focus on the good and focus on what's working and be more positive, then we can really deal with what the issues are. And so what happens is we never really get down to what's the problem. We're never comfortable confessing our sin. We're never comfortable talking about our struggles and our doubts. We're never comfortable dealing with society's injustice and problems. We just stay here and pretend like everything's all right. It's a superficial optimism, and it's a false hope. Listen, sin is real, and it's really bad. It's really bad. It it makes us dead, and it corrupts the whole course of the world, is what Paul says. It brings righteous wrath from heaven on all of creation. That's, That's the reality of sin, but also, the problem is we could live with, with this crushing cynicism, right? Where, where sin is so bad that we have no hope. No hope. And, and the irony of the cynic is the cynic used to be the optimist. The cynic, right? The, the cynic used to be the person who, who gave themselves to this dream of this world without problems, and, and we were hopeful and, and hoping that we could do something about it and, and make things better, and, and they, now they see themselves as too grown up for optimism. Right? I, I've moved past that. I'm more mature, and we call ourselves realists. Right? We, we've experienced the problems enough, but, but what really is happening is uh, we're cynics because we've become weary with the reality of evil. We've been disappointed so many times that now it hurts to hope. It hurts to put ourselves out there and to trust that maybe this time could make a difference. Maybe this time I won't be overcome with sin. And so rather, I'm going to play it safe and lower my expectations down to the bottom where God is not expected to do anything. I'm just expecting the worst all the time. And if something good happens, then praise God. It's unexpected. It's a surprise, right? But if something bad happens, we can step back and say, see, I told you. I knew it was going to be the worst. It's a crushing cynicism. What Paul is inviting us into in this passage is incredible. He's saying, I want you to be honest about how bad your sin is, but I don't want you to lose hope. I don't want you to lose the hope of the gospel. And so there's this radical turn in the text. It's incredible, and it's around these two words, but God. But God. Look at who we become by grace. This is what he says, and this is the second point, by grace. Look at verse 4. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. But God, right? These two words change everything. These two words split the past from the present and the future. In the past, we were one kind of thing. In the past, we were by nature children of wrath. In the past, we were slaves to sin and Satan. In the past, we were sinners. But here we come in and he says, but God. But God, and he repeats it twice, he says, by grace you have been saved. But how? Look at verse 5. He said, made us alive together with Christ. And then in verse 6, he says, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You catch the three words? Made alive, raised, and seated. Made alive, raised, and seated. These, These three verbs in the Greek carry so much weight. 
I mean, if you just read them and you hadn't any context in the whole Bible there, you would think he's talking about Jesus. You would think that he's talking about the life of Jesus because these three words define Jesus' work for us. Right? Jesus is the one that our creed confesses. It says this, He rose again from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right? It's, it's Jesus who's doing these things, and it's Jesus whose life is being described, but Paul shockingly says, this is you. This is you. This is us. In other words, he's saying our identity has this whole new story, this whole new shape, where before it was defined by these other things, but now it's defined by our union with Christ, where by nature... We were sinners bound for hell. He's saying, by grace, now you are seated in the heavens. Do do you see that contrast? Do you see the contrast? He's saying, this is who you are. But one more word as we close. One more word, workmanship. Workmanship. Verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship. I love this. The Greek word is poema. It's, It's the word we get our word poem poem, and it can mean this creative work, this creative masterpiece. And so, in other words, what he's saying, he's using this creation language. He's saying something creative is happening here, something new, something fresh, something completely different is happening. It's this Genesis 1 language that God is creating out of nothing, ex nihilo, something completely new, where there was death now there is life. Where there was bondage, now there's freedom. Where there was guilt, now there's gratitude. Where there was condemnation, there's liberation. Where there was shame, there's beauty, right? Salvation is this new creation. Yeah, yeah. He's saying you are completely new. You, you are his masterpiece. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lord. And so the gospel doesn't create nice people. It creates new people. Yeah. New people. Yeah. That's who you are. A few years ago, a family in Scotland uh, was pleasantly surprised as they had this filming uh, of this TV series from the BBC network come over to their house, and, and it was called Britain's Lost Masterpieces. And this guy, Dr. Benner, he's an art expert. He comes over to their house, and he's looking at all their art that they have in their home, and uh, he, he's walking through their home, and he catches this uh, painting. And, and his eye, his expert eye sees it, and he says, you know what, that looks to me like an original Raphael painting. And the family says, there's no way that's an original. We've had that in our family for a long time. In fact, our family told us that it was a, um, an amateur artist who made a copy. And they said back in 1899, it was valued at like $26. It's not worth anything, trust me. And the guy said, no, 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 I'm, I'm an expert. I've been around his work a long time. I've seen it before. Let me, let me see if I can do some research on this. So he started to research the painting and its history and how it worked. And what he found was, true enough, it was an original Raphael work. And he went to, to estimate how much it's worth. And this is crazy. It wasn't worth $26. It was $26 million. $26 million. That's a surprise. And here's the thing, the, the artist's identity is what made the art invaluable. It was, it was who the artist was that made it worth all that value. See, the question isn't who's in the painting. 
The question is, who painted it? The question isn't what the person looks like. The question is, who is doing the artwork? Who is making the masterpiece? Right? He's saying we are his masterpiece. And so it's the identity of Jesus that makes us who we are. It's his life that we find righteousness. It's in his death that we die to our sin. It's in his resurrection that we have our power. It's in his ascension that we have our hope. It's him seated on the throne where we find our place. That's who we are. That's who we are. You once were this, but in Christ, you are this. By nature, you were this, but by grace, you are this. This is who you are. And it's by faith, right? This is who you are by faith. Paul says you've been saved by grace alone. It's the faith of trusting him and who he says you are that changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are overwhelmed often when we step back and we see the work you are doing in our lives. This together with life where you, you have died, you have been raised, you have been uh, ascended and seated and now you've carried us along with you. That in our union with you, we, we now experience what you experienced. We've died to our sin. We, we've been raised to newness of life. And you've ascended us in some mysterious way already up to be seated with you. And so where we are located, who we are, is already defined by you in your life. And so God, I pray that you would help us to know that, to trust that, and to live it out that the shape of the gospel would really define us more than anything else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.